Welcome back to the Leadership Cheat Code, where we unlock the cheat code to effective leadership. My name is Brian Vaughn, and today I will be discussing a topic that many of us can really relate to, the common fears of leadership. Being a leader comes with its fair share of challenges. We all know that, and it's completely normal to experience fears along the way. But fear should never hold us back from reaching our full potential. So let's dive in and explore five common fears of leadership, along with some strategies to conquer each fear. Fear number one is a fear of failure. One of the most common fears leaders face is the fear of failure. It is natural to worry about making mistakes or falling short of expectations. However, what we should not do is dwell on this fear because it can hinder our growth. So here are some strategies that allow us to conquer the fear of failure. Number one is to embrace a growth mindset. Adopting a growth mindset is crucial in conquering the fear of failure. Understanding that setbacks are opportunities for learning and growth. Instead of dwelling on your mistakes, focus on what you can learn from them. Embrace challenges as a chance to develop your skills and become a better leader. So here are five tips for embracing a growth mindset to conquer the fear of failure. Number one is to cultivate self-compassion. Be kind to yourself when you encounter setbacks or failures, right? Don't be too hard on yourself. Acknowledge that everyone makes mistakes and it is just a natural part of the learning process. So instead of beating yourself up, practice self-compassion and just remind yourself that failure does not define your worth as a person or as a leader. Number two is to set growth-oriented goals. Focus on setting goals that emphasize learning and empowerment rather than just achieving specific outcomes. When you approach tasks with a growth-oriented mindset, you prioritize the journey of learning and gaining new skills over the fear of potential failure. Celebrate progress and effort regardless of the final outcome. Number three is to seek feedback and learn from criticism. Embrace feedback. Feedback is a gift, whether it's positive or negative. I mean, actually, I don't believe that there is positive or negative feedback because all feedback is good and it is meant for development and improvement. I've just come to realize over the years and through my mentor that feedback, one, absolutely is a gift. And then two, it is neither positive or negative. Now we can get into what makes it feel positive or negative, but it is always for the development and growth of the individual because it is always seen as a valuable resource of information that aids in our own growth as leaders. So actively seek feedback from colleagues, from mentors, from team members. So when receiving this criticism, right, view it as an opportunity to identify areas for improvement and develop those abilities further. Number four is to emphasize process over perfection. So you have to learn how to shift your focus from seeking perfection to valuing the process of learning and development, right? We are a lot of people. I can be at times a perfectionist myself, but I had to learn how to set that aside so that I could value the process of learning and development through this journey. So recognize that continuous improvement and small steps forward are more sustainable and effective than striving for flawless performance. By emphasizing the process, you reduce the fear of failure and increase your resilience to setback. 
And number five is to experiment with new approaches. Challenge yourself to step outside of your comfort zone and to try new approaches, even if they carry a certain amount of risk of failure with it. It will usually, but you have to learn how to let go of the fear of failure and embrace a mindset of experimentation where you can view failure as informative data points rather than just personal defeats. So learn from each of these experiments, adjust your strategies, of course, and move forward with this newfound knowledge. Strategy number two is to set realistic goals and to celebrate milestones. Break down your goals into smaller, achievable milestones. So by setting realistic targets, you can build confidence along the way. Celebrate your accomplishments, even the small ones. It doesn't always have to be the big ones, but celebrate even the small ones because over time you are starting to build that confidence in yourself. And the smaller steps, the smaller victories, the smaller achievements can lead to ultimate satisfaction. And that's what you need to really, really achieve is the satisfaction and then celebrate those satisfactions as well. You have to have the ability to recognize that your progress is helping to boost your self-belief and it is also helping to overcome that fear of failure. So here are five tips for setting realistic goals and to celebrate the milestones. Number one is to have smart milestones. So when breaking down your larger goals into milestones, make sure that your goals, of course, are absolutely smart. I know you're going to get tired of hearing me talk about smart goals, right? A lot of videos that I'm going to be putting out and conversations I'm going to have, we're going to talk about smart goals. Goals are essential to accomplishing the things that you are wanting to achieve as a leader. So of course, make them specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound. Specificity helps you focus on the precise outcome that you want, while also measurability lets you track that process, right? So if you have measures in place, you can track your own progress towards the achievement of those particular goals. So you have to make sure that each milestone is realistically achievable within a set time frame and it's also relevant to your overall goal. Number two is to visualize success. Visualization is a very powerful tool. Right. You have to learn how to create a visual representation of your milestones and the path to achieving your ultimate goal. This could be in the form of a timeline, a vision board or a progress chart. Visualizing your success helps maintain motivation and reminds you of the progress that you've made along the way. Number three, flexible adjustments. Right. You have to learn how to be flexible. So make sure that you are open to adjusting your milestones if necessary. Things will change. You're going to need to adapt and to be flexible. So and the reason why is because sometimes we as leaders face unexpected challenges or opportunities arise that can kind of throw us off track. So rigidly sticking to the initial plan may not be the most effective approach. Being flexible allows you to adapt and set new realistic milestones when needed. Number four is to have a reward system. Right. So set up a reward system for yourself to celebrate the completion of each milestone. It doesn't have to be extravagant, huge. Right. It could be simply treating yourself to your favorite meal or it could be taking a day off for relaxation or it could just be engaging in a fun activity that you enjoy to do. Take yourself to the movies. Right. Have some fun. Celebrate yourself. Celebrate those achievements. It helps to reinforce the positive behavior that you're setting and it helps you as a leader to stay motivated. Number five. Share your achievements. Celebrate your milestones with others, whether it's your friends, your family, your colleagues, peers, whoever it may be, but share 
your milestones, include others into your success. Sharing your success not only provides a sense of satisfaction, but it also encourages support from those that are around you, right? Positive reinforcement from others can reinforce your own self-belief and provide encouragement to keep moving forward. All right, let's go to fear number two. Actually, fear number two is probably the biggest fear that people have in life general. And that's the fear of public speaking. I had it when I first got into the learning and development field, having to stand in front of a group of people that I didn't know and say things that I may not have been comfortable with. It is probably the most common fear that is among leaders, right? So whether it's you presenting in front of a large group or it's simply addressing your team, speaking with confidence is going to be crucial for you as a leader. So let's explore some strategies to conquer the fear of public speaking. Number one, and it's something that I will preach over and over and over again, is preparation and practice. All right, let me say that again. Preparation and practice. You as a leader should be preparing thoroughly for your presentations or your speeches. You need to make sure that you are researching your topic, organizing your thoughts, and that you're creating an outline of your notes. Take time to practice your delivery, whether it is in front of a mirror. I've done that so many times standing in front of a mirror, saying what I'm going to say to see what I look like. You can practice with a friend, right? Because they can give you feedback and act as an audience for you. Or you can record yourself. That is a great, seeing yourself on camera is a great way for you to see what type of body language you have, how you look, your facial expressions, your hand movements, your weird gestures and things like that. So the more you practice, the more comfortable and confident you'll become. So here are five tips for you that you can implement to help you to prepare and practice. Number one is to understand your audience. Tailor your content and delivery to resonate with your specific audience. Consider their interests and their knowledge level and any potential cultural differences. This will help you to connect with them on a deeper level and to keep them engaged throughout the presentation because you're able to utilize that and to incorporate that into your overall presentation. Okay, let's go to number two, which is to incorporate visualization techniques, right? This is you imagining yourself, visualizing yourself, delivering a successful presentation. Imagine the audience being captivated by your words and reacting positively to your key points, right? Imagine all the questions that they're asking and you answering those questions confidently. This is that mental rehearsal that you need, and it can help to reduce any anxiety and also to boost your confidence when it is time for you to actually present. Number three is to time yourself, right? So during your practice, keep a timer, set up a timer somewhere where you can see it. And that way you're able to gauge how long certain things take. Ensure that you stay within the allotted time for your presentation for each of those agenda items. Being able to present your material succinctly shows respect for your audience's time and it keeps them focused on your main ideas. So the more you practice, the better you will get, the better you will get at the timing of your topic, uh, just make sure that you stay on track with your agenda items. And number four is to record and review, right? So utilize technology to record yourself during practice sessions. It might feel uncomfortable. And, oh, it, trust me, it's, it's going to feel uncomfortable to actually see yourself back on camera. Oh, you're going to cringe when you see it. So it's going to be uncomfortable at first, but by you reviewing the recording, it allows you to identify 
all those different areas of improvement, right? Such as I mentioned earlier, your body language, your vocal tone, your pacing, your fidgeting. You can tell if you're nervous, all these things you're able to see if you can one, record yourself and then to see yourself back on camera. It is probably one of the biggest ways to improve your ability as a public speaker. And then you can use that feedback to refine your delivery and also to fine tune your overall presentation. And then number five is to rehearse in different settings. Don't limit yourself to just practice in one environment, right? If possible, rehearse in many different types of settings to mimic the actual presentation venue, right? So practice in different places to help, you know, you adapt to different acoustics and lighting and layouts and room uh, configurations and all those different different things. The more you're able to practice and put yourself in those scenarios, the more comfortable you'll be, the more adaptable and confident you'll be during your actual presentation. And then strategy number two is to focus on audience engagement. So instead of fixating on your fear, right? So shift your focus to engaging with your audience. Don't think about, oh gosh, I'm, I'm fearful right now and you, I'm shaking, right? Focus on the audience. Right, connect with them on a personal level by maintaining eye contact, using hand gestures and body language, and telling stories. Right, people relate to stories, and the more comfortable you are with the people, the better you are at presenting. You can relax. So remember, it's not about being perfect. It's not about perfection. It is about communicating your message and connecting with your listeners. So here are five things that you can do to engage with your audience. Number one is active listening and responding. So pay attention close attention to your audience reactions and body language while you speak. They really can tell you if they're connecting with you, if they're getting your message or if they're disengaged. So if you notice that people are nodding and smiling and they're showing interest, that's a positive sign that they're engaged. On the other hand, if you sense that they're confused or disinterested, be prepared to adapt your message or you could probably ask questions to involve them into the conversation, into your presentation. Number two is to ask thought-provoking questions. A lot of times people just sit up to ask questions, but they don't really ask thought-provoking questions. They don't take time to ask those questions. So encourage your audience by asking questions, posing these thought questions to them so that they're able to respond. This could be asking people to show their hands, uh, to respond to certain types of questions for reflection, or it could be even... Uh, just hosting brief audience discussions based upon your topic. But the key is, is to involve them directly. Make your presentation interactive and memorable. Number three is to utilize visual aids. Visual aids is a great tool to use to enhance your own communication style, right? Whether that's slides or graphs or images or videos. Visual elements can capture their attention, right? Because a lot of people are visual, Right. So a lot of people are auditory. A lot of, lots of people are kinesthetic or hands on. But a lot of people are visual. They want to see certain things. So give them those elements that can capture their attention and that can reinforce the key concepts that you're making and also that can make complex concepts easier to understand. However, just be cautious not to overload your presentation with too many visuals. Right. I've seen people stock it up with visuals. Right. Or distracting elements like things flying all over the place in your PowerPoint and so many transitions and animations. Just be very mindful that your visual aids are not distracting. They should help tell your story, not deter from it or detract from it. Number four is to share relevant stories and examples. 
The ability to weave stories and real life examples into your speeches really helps to create a connection with your audience. Personal anecdotes and case studies make your message relatable and showcase the practical application of your ideas. So throw those in. People love analogies, people love stories, people love anecdotes. It makes the connection, right? Just think about how you remember certain things when you were in school. How do you remember the Great Lakes, right? How do you remember the colors of the rainbow? Use those types of tools within your own presentation. And then lastly, number five is to use humor wisely. I will preach this until the cows come home to any presenter anywhere is that when you're using humor, humor can be a very powerful tool to help you engage your audience and to break that ice, but it can be very detrimental to your, your overall presentation, right? So use appropriate jokes or lighthearted anecdotes because this can help to create a friendly environment and to make your talk more enjoyable, but be very careful because humor can backfire easily if you are not considerate of your audience if you are not considerate of your environment it can really throw your presentation off so be very mindful of how you use humor ask a friend if you have a joke go to a friend or to a colleague and tell them that joke or that story and see their reaction and get their feedback and input that'll help before you stand in front of a group of people and say what you're going to say Fear number three is the fear of delegating. As leaders, we need to delegate tasks and responsibilities because it is an essential skill for any leader. However, many leaders fear delegating for many reasons, right? This could be the fear that they think they're going to lose control or that they don't have control over the quality of work. So they would rather just take it all on themselves and burn themselves out rather than just delegating the task to people on their team. Delegating is one of the most effective ways for you as a leader to grow your own leadership skills and capabilities. So let's look at some strategies on how you could delegate effectively. Number one, it starts with trust. Build trust in your team. Make sure that you are investing time in building trust with your team. Get to know their strengths, their skills, and their areas of interest. Then you can assign tasks that align with their abilities and provide clear expectations to them. When you trust your team members and empower them, you'll witness their growth and the positive impact it is going to have on them in achieving shared goals, personal goals. It'll also, as a leader, develop your own personal skills and delegation as well. Learning how to let go. A lot of leaders don't like to let go. They want to be in control. If if I give this away, they may not do it the way that I'm going to do it. No, they may actually do it better than what you're going to do. So just give it to them and allow them to do it. Make sure that they can do it. Make sure they have the skills necessary to, can do, to do it. And then give it to them. And then get out of their way. Right? Let them manage that task. Give them the authority and the responsibility when doing that. And I'll talk about that in many, many videos. Okay, let's go to our first tip to helping you build trust in your team. Number one is open and honest communication. As leaders, we have to make sure that we are encouraging open and honest communication at all levels with everyone, with the teams, with ourselves, with peers. Communication is important. 
because communication helps to foster an environment where everyone feels comfortable expressing their ideas, their concern, and feedback without fear of judgment and ridicule. Active listening is crucial in building trust and ensuring everyone's voice is heard. Any relationship that you have with anyone on this planet revolves around trust. So you have to develop trust first. Okay, so let's look at number two, lead by example. As a leader, you need to demonstrate trustworthiness by being reliable and transparent in your actions and in your decisions. When team members see that you are leading with integrity, they are more likely to reciprocate that behavior, which in turn is going to foster a culture of trust and accountability. Number three is to acknowledge and appreciate. This is your ability as a leader to recognize and appreciate your team members' efforts and their achievements. Publicly acknowledging their contribution builds their confidence and reinforces positive behavior. When individuals feel valued, they are more invested in the team's success. Number four is to support personal growth. Show genuine interest in your team members' personal and professional development. Provide opportunities for skill building and growth, such as workshops and trainings and mentoring. When employees see that you care about their career development, they are more likely to trust you as a leader and your intentions as well. And then number five is to celebrate diversity. Embrace the diversity within your team, right? We all come with different backgrounds, different upbringings, different ideas, thoughts. Celebrate those. Recognize and appreciate the unique strengths and perspectives of each person on your team. The things that they are bringing to the table as a member of this collective group. A diverse team can enrich problem solving and creativity. And that's because we're all coming with our own different ideas and backgrounds and experiences. And this can help lead the team to stronger bonds and mutual trust. Okay, let's go to strategy number two, which is to start small and provide support. Don't jump in just into the big things already, right? Don't jump in with both of your feet into the water that fast. Take a step back, start small and provide support, right? This is delegating because if you just give a person a task and you haven't really determined if they're capable, you're going to find yourself reeling it back in. Well, I don't think you really can do it. Uh, I gave it to you and it didn't work out the way that I thought. So I'll just go ahead and do it. Start small, right? So begin delegating small tasks to your team members. As they prove themselves capable, gradually assign more significant responsibilities and then make sure that you provide support and guidance along the way. But do not micromanage, right? Don't, oh, let me just take it from me because I don't, or, hey, let me ask you four, five, six, seven times throughout the day, where you are with that particular project, that particular task. You have to have the ability to trust your team members' abilities and to provide them with the resources they need to succeed. By doing so, you're gonna foster a culture of empowerment and collaboration. So here are five things that you can do to ensure that you're starting small and that you're providing support. Number one is clear communication and expectations. Clearly communicate the objectives and expectations for each delegated task. Make sure that the team understands the importance of that task and how it aligns with the overall goals of the project or the team or the organization. The clarity will empower them. I'm telling you, if you are clear, it will empower them to take ownership and responsibility for the work. If you're not clear, then they're not going to know what to do. They're not going to feel responsible. They're going to feel set up. So make sure that you give them the ownership and the power and the responsibility and the authority when you're delegating tasks through clarity, right? It comes through clarity. And then number two is to identify individual strengths, 
right? So take the time to understand each team member's strengths, skills, and areas of growth. Assign tasks that align with those capabilities, right? So that you can maximize your chances of success. And then you can recognize and acknowledge their efforts when they do excel, because then that's going to boost their own self-confidence and motivation personally, but it'll also boost your confidence and motivation to delegate more. Okay, let's look at number three, which is provide constructive feedback. Regularly provide feedback on the progress of the delegated tasks, not micromanaging, but providing feedback, checking in periodically and providing feedback. Focus on all the aspects of that project and identify any areas of improvement and give feedback, constructive feedback. Once again, feedback is meant to improve. It is not good or bad, but it is for improvement, but it has to be supportive, right? You have to make sure that your tone is appropriate. Your intent is appropriate when you are communicating and providing constructive feedback in a supportive manner. You have to make sure that you're emphasizing the team's growth and development rather than just pointing out, oh, you did this wrong, you did that wrong. But it is for growth and development and supporting them along the way through that process. Number four is to encourage learning and development. Support and encourage your team members to expand their own knowledge and skills. Provide opportunities for training and workshops and mentoring and coaching and development. These programs can help enhance their capabilities and confidence in handling more significant responsibilities. And number five is to create a safe environment for failure, right? If you want people to take risk, you have to create an environment where failure is going to be welcomed. Failure is going to be, I don't want to say celebrated, but it's going to be free of ridicule. Uh, it's going to be free of retaliation and judgment because you have to understand that we all make mistakes and mistakes are part of the learning process. So you as a leader have to foster a safe environment where team members can feel comfortable taking those risks and making mistakes without consequence, harsh consequence. A lot of leaders like to just come down on their staff. You didn't do this the right way. And I was expecting you to do this. And you're going to demotivate your staff. But use failure as opportunities for learning and improvement rather than just, than just reprimanding them and punishing them. Number four, right? Fear number four. You'd be surprised. Maybe, maybe not. Fear of conflict. In my career, and my coaching with other leaders, they don't like conflict. They want to steer clear of conflict. It's inevitable. It is a part of leadership, right? Many leaders don't know how to deal with this effectively. They fear it. They run from it, right? They avoid it. They want to get away from conflict. But avoiding conflict can hinder your growth as a leader, right? It can hinder your growth. It can hinder the team's dynamics and the team's growth. As a leader, you have to figure out how to handle conflict effectively. So let's talk about some strategies on how to conquer the fear of conflict. Number one is to develop strong communication skills. Effective communication is the key to resolving conflicts, right? If you're skilled in communication and you're skilled on how to handle conflict, you'll deal with it more easily than just running from it and avoiding it, right? Things like active listening to others, practicing empathy, and clearly expressing your thoughts and concerns help you to handle and deal with conflict effectively. When you can communicate effectively, you'll feel more confident in addressing conflicts and finding constructive solutions. 
So here are some things that you can do to help develop strong communication skills. Number one is active listening. I'm telling, I'm going to talk about active listening a lot. Your ability as a leader to listen helps resolve and it helps deal with a lot of issues, right? Active listening is key. When you are engaging in conflict resolution discussions, you need to critically listen. You need to focus on being that active listener. You need to give your attention to the person speaking without interrupting or judging. I mean, imagine you're in a conflict with someone and you're interrupting. What happens? That conflict, the emotions heighten, right? That conflict goes to a different level. So you have to listen. Listening not only to the words, but also to the emotions and to the underlying concerns that they are expressing in that moment. This is going to help you to gain a deeper understanding of the situation and the other person's perspective. Number two is to develop empathy and understanding. Your ability to cultivate empathy during conflict is going to put yourself in that other person's shoes. You're going to start to understand their feelings, their needs, and their motivations. This allows you as a leader to recognize that everyone has their own unique perspective and experiences that shape their own actions, right? So why do people do the things that they do? It comes from their own unique experiences and perspectives, their own paradigms, the way that they see the world, the way that they approach the world, the way that they make decisions and deal with things in life, right? These very things shape their actions. So for you as a leader, showing genuine empathy can help to create a more conducive environment for resolving these conflicts. And number three is to use I statements. I statements versus you statements, right? So when you're expressing your thoughts and concerns, use I statements instead of those you statements. I statements allow you to take responsibility for your own emotions and reactions. And this allows you to reduce the likelihood of the other person becoming defensive. So for example, you could say something like, I feel upset when this happens instead of you always make me angry when you do that. Oh, I do. I make you angry. Well, guess what? You make me angry, too. Right. You don't want that. That's that's not how you resolve conflict. That's how conflict gets out of hand. Use I statements versus you statements. Number four is nonverbal communication. So remember that communication is not just about words. Right. It's about our tone of voice. It is about our body language. It is about these nonverbal cues that we use that also play a significant role in our communication. So just be aware of your body language, your tone of voice, your facial expression, right? People have their emotions and what they really feel on their face. You show it. So just be careful of that, especially as a leader in a very challenging situation. Though It can derail your attempt to resolve the conflict. So as a leader, you have to make sure that you maintain an open and approachable body language to foster a sense of trust and cooperation. And number five is to seek feedback and clarification. So to ensure that effective communication is happening, don't hesitate to seek feedback and clarification. I can't always think that I am communicating at the highest level all the time. And I need clarity from others to say, hey, am I communicating this information correctly with clarity? Do you understand what I'm saying? Help me to understand to make sure that one, I'm communicating effectively and that my message is getting across. So if you are unsure about something the other person has said, ask for clarification rather than just making assumptions. And of course, vice versa. If you are saying things, seek clarity from the other person, get them to ask 
those clarifying questions so they can understand your perspective as well. This practice helps to prevent misunderstandings and to ensure that both parties are on the same page. All right, let's go to strategy number two, which is to foster a positive conflict resolution culture, right? We're still dealing with the fear of conflict. And so in order to mitigate conflict, to prevent conflict in the very beginning is to have a culture of conflict resolution. How are you going to handle this even when conflict may not arise? But when you are creating this environment where conflict is seen as an opportunity for growth and innovation, you have the ability to be proactive when it comes to dealing with those challenging situations early on. This is your ability as a leader to encourage that open dialogue and to respect diverse perspectives in the very beginning. People need to know, hey, I think differently than you. That may cause us to rub ourselves against one another differently. We may have some conflict, but if you can implement conflict resolution strategies such as mediation or team building uh, exercises in the beginning, it will go a long way to creating that culture of conflict resolution. By fostering a positive conflict resolution culture, you'll transform conflicts into opportunities for stronger relationships and team collaboration. So here's five things to help you foster a positive conflict resolution culture. Number one is to have conflict awareness workshops. Conduct regular conflict awareness workshops for all team members. So these workshops should focus on helping employees understand the different types of conflicts that can arise, the potential triggers, right, for each person, because we all have different triggers that can set us off. And then we need to recognize what those triggers are so that we can deal with them before the conflict arise. And they also need to understand the impact that they can have on the team's dynamics. So raising awareness will help enable individuals to recognize and address conflict early on, preventing them from escalating to higher levels. Number two is to have designated mediators, right? So appoint or train specific individuals within the organization to act as mediators and that these mediators should be skilled in conflict resolution techniques and be a neutral third party who can help disputing parties communicate effectively and to also find mutually agreeable solutions. So having the designated mediators ensures that conflicts are handled constructively and professionally, right? Because that's what you want. If you're going to have a mediator, they should be a neutral third party that can help bring people together to resolve those conflicts constructively and professionally. And then number three is to construct a feedback culture, right? We talked about that in the very beginning, but this allows you as a leader to promote a culture of giving and receiving constructive feedback, giving and receiving. You give feedback, you receive feedback, right? This is going to help encourage team members to express their opinions and their concerns openly, but respectfully, right? You still got to be respectful. That's the big key. You can't just walk into the office and, you know, say, whatever you want to say disrespectfully, come in a very respectful manner to express your opinions and your concerns, but it has to be respectfully. So by providing and accepting feedback graciously, individuals can address conflicts in their early stages and work towards continuous improvement without unnecessary tension. It doesn't have to be tension. If you can figure out how to resolve it in the very beginning, then it is going to be easier when conflict does arise. And then number four is to have conflict de-escalation training, right? How do you de-escalate a conflict 
when you start to see it arise. You have to offer conflict de-escalation training to managers and to team leaders. Conflict de-escalation techniques help leaders to respond calmly and thoughtfully to these tense situations because you're going to have them. Right? This is going to prevent conflicts from intensifying any higher. This type of training can equip leaders with the skills to address conflicts in a composed and empathetic manner. And then number five, which I love, is to have recognition and rewards for resolution. Right? Your ability to acknowledge and reward instances where conflicts are resolved positively and productively, that's going to go a long way. Right? You are rewarding people for positive conflict resolution. That is going to build behaviors that you want so that when conflicts arise, they automatically, second nature, go to those types of resolution tactics. So this type of resolution can be in the form of verbal appreciation. It can be small incentives. It can even be something like personal development opportunities. But by celebrating successful conflict resolution, you are reinforcing the importance of the desired behaviors that you want to see, and you are encouraging other people to follow suit. And last but not least is the fear of rejection. Mm. We've all experienced that in our life, whether it was the girl in high school, the boy in high school, whether it was getting the, the door slammed in your face when you're trying to sell rainbow vacuum cleaners, as I did early on in my career, or it can be just flat out rejection. This can really affect your mindset. It can affect a leader's decision making capabilities and your confidence. The ability for you as a leader to overcome this fear is crucial for your own personal and professional development. So let's look at two strategies to conquer the fear of rejection. Number one is to separate your worth from the outcomes. Remember that rejection doesn't define who you are as a leader. It doesn't define your worth as a leader or as an individual. So you have to separate the two. Separate your self-esteem from external outcomes. Focus on the effort, the learning, and the growth that you put into your work rather than solely on the results. By shifting your perspective, you will reduce the fear of rejection and embrace resilience. So here are five tips to help you learn how to practice separating your worth from the outcomes. Number one is to cultivate a growth mindset. Embrace the idea that abilities and skills can be developed through dedication and hard work which they absolutely can. A growth mindset, if you do adopt this type of mindset, you're going to start to see rejection as an opportunity to learn and to improve rather than a reflection of your inherent worth. You got to separate those two. And then number two is to set process-oriented goals. So instead of being fixated on the end result, focus on setting goals that emphasize the process and effort you put into your task. Celebrate the small milestones and progress you make along the way, regardless of the final outcome. And number three is to practice self-compassion. Don't be too hard on yourself, right? Don't beat yourself up. Treat yourself with kindness and understand that when you're facing rejection or setbacks, these type of things happen. Be kind to yourself. Acknowledge that everyone experiences rejection at some level. At some point in their life, we have all experienced rejection. And it doesn't make you less capable or less valuable as a leader or an individual. 
separate, learn how to, to here is, is my self-worth. Here are the outcomes. My outcomes do not define me as a person. I may have failed in this project, but that failure in that project does not define me as an individual, as a leader. All right, let's go to number four, which is to learn from rejection. Rejection is a learning tool, right? So rather than just dwelling on the disappointment of the rejection, take time to reflect on the experience, the outcomes that you've learned from. What did you gain from it? What did you gain from that rejection? Right. So identify any areas where you can improve and to use that feedback constructively to enhance your own personal skills and your decision making capabilities. And then number five is to surround yourself with supportive peers. Right. So build a network of supportive individuals who believe in your potential and can encourage your growth. This is a person you can call them and say, hey, I'm struggling right now. Right. I failed in this particular project and I feel that my, my self-worth is taking a hit. And they can come alongside you to support you, to make sure that you're maintaining a positive perspective and give you the ability to bounce back from rejection with a renewed determination. Okay, so strategy number two is to seek feedback and learn from these rejections, right? So embrace feedback as a valuable tool for improvement because that's exactly what feedback is, a tool for improvement. And if you take the things you're learning from that rejection and turn it into feedback, and then use it as opportunities for improvement, you will come a long way as a leader. So seek out this feedback from mentors and colleagues and team members, people that you trust. Embrace this constructive criticism. It's gonna to be tough. Sometimes you don't wanna hear things that are hard, but we need that type of constructive criticism in our life because it helps us to grow as a leader. And that way we can then minimize the fear of rejection. Learn from rejections and use them as stepping stones towards your success as a leader. So here are five tips to help you to seek feedback and to learn from rejection. Number one is to create a feedback friendly environment. This is your ability as a leader to foster an open and a supportive atmosphere where feedback is encouraged, it is appreciated, and it is sought after. Let team members know, hey, you know what? I appreciate your opinions. They are valued and that providing constructive criticism is an essential part of growth and development. As a leader, you need that. You need for your team to give you feedback. You think that, hey, I'm just a great leader, but your team may be like, mm, I don't know, maybe not. And if you never get that feedback, how are you truly going to grow and develop? You have to make yourself approachable and to be receptive to feedback. This is going to set an example for others to follow. You're creating a culture of feedback. Number two is to ask specific questions. So when you're seeking feedback, be specific about what you want to know. General things like, well, how am I doing? That's not really going to get you anywhere. Are you doing great? Okay, then, well, thank you. There's no specificity with that. There's no detail. That is a very vague response. You have to ask pointed questions, very direct questions about your performance, your communication style, your decision-making process, or any specific area that you would like to improve in. This is a very targeted approach because it makes it easier for others to provide feedback that is actionable, that is tangible, things that you can do to implement into your own leadership practices. And then number three is to separate yourself from the criticism. You have to recognize that one feedback is a gift. It is absolutely a gift, right? And what do we do with gifts? 
we can either take the gift and accept it or we can wrap it back up and give it to somebody else right that's exactly not what you you don't do that with with feedback but it's a gift and so we appreciate people when they give us this constructive feedback so that we can grow and develop but receiving feedback can be challenging especially when it's about your own leadership style or your communication style or your decision making process so to benefit from feedback fully detach your emotions from the criticism remember that feedback is about your actions and behaviors not your worth as a person it is not an attack on you as a person it is specifically about your actions and your behaviors as a leader so as a leader you have to stay objective and you have to focus on the opportunities to for growth rather than taking it personally don't take it personally right it is not a personal attack it is to help you grow and to develop and it should only be focused on your actions and your behaviors okay number four is to turn rejections into learning opportunities. So when faced with rejection, view it as a chance to learn and to adapt. Analyze the reasons behind the rejection and identify areas that need improvement. Shoot, sometimes you may even have to ask, can you provide me feedback as to why I am being rejected? And then they can tell you, be open to it. Embrace what they're gonna tell you. Embrace failures as valuable lessons and use them to refine your strategies and approaches. By doing so, you can absolutely increase your chances of success in the future. And then number five is to implement regular feedback sessions. Don't wait for feedback to come your way. Like you have to actively seek it out. You need to be proactive and to initiate regular feedback with your mentors, your colleagues, your peers, your team members. You need to be getting feedback from all different places all of the time. These can be informal, they can be formal sessions, depending on your relationship and your preferences. But the deal is, is that regular feedback allows you to track your progress and make continuous improvements, which will ultimately enhance your own leadership skills. All right, and so look, there you have it. Five common fears of leadership and strategies that you can use to conquer each of these different fears. You have to remember that leadership is a journey of growth and it is okay to experience fears along the way. By implementing these strategies and pushing past your comfort zone, you'll become a stronger and more confident leader. If you found this information helpful, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for more valuable content on leadership and personal development. Also, let us know in the comments below if you have any other fears or strategies to share with the community. And once again, thanks for tuning in. And remember, to unlock your leadership effectiveness, you must master the cheat code. See you next time.